ولقد كرمنا بني آدم وحملناهم في البر والبحر ورزقناهم ورزقناهم من الطيبات وفضلناهم على كثير ممن خلقنا تفضيلا أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم Assalamu alaikum and welcome to this third episode of the podcast series titled Becoming Bani Adam, Exploring Twelver Shi'i Discussions on Human Ancestry. My name is Fatla Megji and I'll be introducing each podcast episode, which is an audiobook of a paper that I wrote a few years ago. The audiobook is narrated by Brother Justin Mishouf. In our previous episode, we discussed the complicated relationship between empirical science and religion over time, and the relevance of the discussion on human evolution in our namely Twelver Shi'i scriptural resources. In today's episode, we will explore both theological and hermeneutical considerations that are relevant to the topic. We will also explore the common misconception that belief in evolution is somehow at odds with the belief in God and the logical fallacies that play into this. What are the theological considerations that are relevant to this discussion on human ancestry? Moreover, we will introduce in brief the subject of Quranic hermeneutics, which is essentially the principles by which scholars interpret the Qur'an and the various concerns which they take into consideration, including different pieces of evidence for how to extrapolate meaning. When can we take the Qur'an figuratively versus literally, and what process do scholars follow? This conversation is the crux of the issue because there are some verses that some argue could be taken in support of evolution and others that are less clear. To illustrate this further, let's go through a few Quranic examples before we get into today's episode. In chapter 7, verse 11, we read, وَلَقَدْ خَلَقُنَاكُمْ ثُمَّ صَوَّرْنَاكُمْ ثُمَّ قُلْنَا لِلْمَلَائِكَةِ اسْجُدُوا لِآدَمِ ثُمَّ قُلْنَا لِلْمَلَائِكَةِ اسْجُدُوا لِآدَمَ فَسَجَدُوا إِلَّا إِبْلِيسَ لَمْ يَكُنْ مِنَ السَّاجِدِينَ Certainly, we created you, then we formed you, then we said to the angels, prostrate before Adam. So they all prostrated, but not Iblis. He was not among those who prostrated. End quote. Some argue that while the verse notes the creation of Adam salam, it also demonstrates multiple stages. First, it says that God created mankind, and then it says that God shaped mankind. This shaping, noted after an initial creation, could arguably denote an evolutionary process. However, the Qur'an is silent and doesn't comment on what this shaping entailed or how long it took or what exactly this shaping means. In another verse, namely verse 17 of chapter 71, we read the following. Allah made you grow from the earth with a vegetable growth. Here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is addressing mankind's growth process, and some posit that this means that we originate from an evolutionary process, and that's what a vegetable growth is referring to. However, when referring to Sayyidah Maryam sallallahu alayha, a similar usage is used, and we know that she did not have a evolutionary birth, so to speak. There is another verse in Surah Al-Imran, verse 59, where we read the following. 
إن مثل عيسى عند الله كمثل آدم خلقه من تراب ثم قال له كن فيكون Indeed, the case of Jesus with Allah is like the case of Adam. He created him from dust, then said to him, Be, and he was. This verse seems to indicate that Adam's creation was miraculous, as was the creation of Jesus. This comparison and argument from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only makes sense if Adam did not have either parent and was instead created in a miraculous, instantaneous manner as was the miracle of Jesus, who had no father. This is the strongest verse used to indicate a literal contradiction against the evolutionary ancestry of human beings, and will be explored in depth later in this paper. With the various verses and interpretive possibilities, how we interpret the Qur'an and the process by which we extrapolate meaning or the hermeneutics or usulul tafsir becomes incredibly important to understand, because it is important that we don't haphazardly apply principles in different scenarios, as we would like to come to a just interpretation of the Qur'an. And with that, let's begin today's session from the audiobook. Like all other Abrahamic faiths, the Islamic tradition has been historically uniform about the creation of man. Adam was directly and miraculously created by God, outside of normal causes, from clay or dirt or earth. Several verses and traditions discuss the creation of man from an earthly substance, Words used include Torab, Quran 3.59, Teen, Quran 6.2, Salsal, Hamma, Masnun, Quran 15.26. Ayatollah Jawadi argues that the terminology used when describing Adam's creation represent different stages, increasing in their complexity. Though some have opted to interpret these terms as symbolic versus literal, most Mufassirin throughout history have argued that these are meant to be taken literally. This is due to an approach in reading the Qur'an where the default interpretation is the literal one. This hermeneutical principle will be explored later. This is definitely at odds with the predominant scientific belief that humans have descended and evolved from a long chain of mammals. Human evolution is now so widely accepted that the evidence for it is presented as insurmountable and beyond reasonable doubt. Fossil evidence showing human-like creatures dating back millions of years and other empirical evidence supports the theory of evolution to such a degree that it can no longer be disputed without significant fallout. Approaches like this have strengthened the false notion that accepting evolution as the methodology for the creation of mankind is paramount to the rejection of a sentient designer slash creator, i.e. God. The false dichotomy has been created because evolution seems to contradict the way in which God says he created mankind according to religious texts like the Old Testament. For those with religious inclinations, this is the crux of the problem. Belief in evolution does not preclude belief in God, nor does evolution explain the origins of life, which is a puzzle that continues to haunt atheists as they attempt to recreate life. Questions like, what set the world into motion? and what instigated life itself in the first cells on Earth remain unanswered. Thus, evolution does nothing to disprove the cosmological argument for a necessary being, i.e. God. Essentially, accepting evolution as a process for the creation of mankind is not at odds with the belief in a creator. Further to this point, empirical research can only explore the tangible and material aspects of our world, i.e. what can be observed and measured. 
How is it possible to disprove the existence of God through scientific means when nothing can test or disprove what does or does not exist in the immaterial world? Some may deny an immaterial reality altogether, like many materialists and positivists do, or remain indifferent or agnostic towards anything they cannot directly observe. However, as God is immaterial, he cannot be directly observed by the material world, so the conversation remains outside the scope of the empirical sciences. The truth is that humans have also struggled with observing the material world, as was discussed with the hunt for invisible dark matter mentioned in the preamble. As such, discussions of the existence of God are outside of the scope of a discussion on evolution or even empirical evidence in general. Essentially, evolution is not in contradiction with the existence of God, an issue that Shahid Mortaz Mutahiri died 1979, has explored in detail in his paper Tawheed Batakamul, Monotheism and Evolution, and in the causes responsible for the materialist tendencies in the West. Taking all of this into consideration, it has been suggested by 12 or Shi'i scholars that even if our evolutionary ancestry were to be proven to the point of fact, it would be warranted for Muslims to understand the verses on the creation of mankind accordingly. Looking only at the verses of the Quran, not much can be concluded about the origins of mankind, as the Quran is seemingly strategically obscure even in its most literal apparent meaning. It can be read both as accepting human evolution and as rejecting it. The above discussion points to a more important question on extrapolating meaning from text or speech. When do we understand things literally? When do we, or can we, opt for a figurative understanding? Under which premise do we operate as a default to figure out the best intended meaning of the speaker? This idea is explored as hujjat al-dhuhur in both usul al-fiqh, principles of jurisprudence, and usul al-tafsir, principles of exegesis which are both related to exegetical hermeneutics. Hujjiyat al-Dhuhur means the probativity of the apparent, prima facie meaning of a text. It is important to note here that this discussion includes both literal and figurative understandings as within the scope of linguistic possibility. As such, a figurative understanding is a realistic option under linguistic possibility and is not directly in contradiction with prima facie meaning, khilaf al-Dhahir, or opposed to it. In fact, a figurative meaning could be the speaker's intended meaning or prima facie dhahir speech. A pertinent point to note here, however, is that not all linguistic possibilities are equal, and some are more probable than others. To explain this, Shahid Muhammad Baqar al-Sadr died 1980 in Principles of Islamic Jurisprudence, widely taught in the traditional 12 or Shi'i seminaries, gives the example of someone saying, go to the sea every day. In Arabic, this has two possible meanings, both in the realm of linguistic possibility. The first is the most immediate, obvious possibility, i.e. the most direct lexical connection by means of convention, i.e. the haqiqi meaning. This would be the sea as a vast body of salt water. The other meaning for sea in Arabic is a secondary or metaphorical meaning, majaz, where sea refers to a learned person who is like a vast body of knowledge. So to go to the sea every day would mean to visit a scholar every day and learn from him or her. However, this metaphorical meaning, because it is related to the literary meaning, and has some resemblance to the literal meaning for which the word was postulated, this secondary meaning would become the apparent prima facie meaning, dhahir, if there were supporting indications, qara'in, like context, siyaq, that figurative meaning was the intended meaning. A colloquial equivalent might be something like sick. The literal haqiqi meaning would be ill or not well. However, in 2020, the word is often used inverse to its literal meaning, to mean that something is great. This secondary meaning would be its figurative meaning, majaz. 
To elaborate this point further, Shahida Sadr continues by saying that if one says sea of knowledge, this would ensure that the figurative meaning is understood at a dhahiri prima facie apparent level. Similarly, if a person were to say this article is sick, the figurative meaning could be understood at its prima facie level. However, if it was said, go to the sea every day and attentively listen to him slash it talking, one could argue that the context and general functioning of the language would indicate that this also clearly indicates that the sea here refers to a scholar as a sea does not talk. The probability of the majaz figurative meaning of sea is therefore higher. However, if one were to argue that the sounds of the waves function as the means by which the literal sea talks, one could argue that the meaning of this sentence is ambiguous, i.e., both possibilities are equally probable. In this case, both the literal haqiqi and figurative majaz would be equally probable as the prima facie meaning, zahir, and one linguistic probability could not be given preference over the other. In other words, the multiple linguistic probabilities are equally plausible, without the necessity of one negating the other. To help in situations like this, an understanding of the context and intent of the speaker would play a pivotal role. Faced with this ambiguity, the question becomes, what would be the default meaning that we should take? Many, like Shahida Sadr, would argue that the literal, apparent meaning is what should be relied on as a default, asal, and that it can be done so with enough probability such that it attains probativity, hujjiat, and is more probable than the figurative majaz, a figurative meaning or alternative literal meanings that are haqiqi but not zuhur, could not be contradictory to the zahir, khilaf al-zahir, of the Qur'an, but neither of them, majaz and alternative literal, would be the default to which one would rely on or lean towards without a valid or improbable reason, like empirical impossibility or improbability. The discussion, however, is sometimes limited to asul al-fiqh, the principles of jurisprudence, where a legal ruling is necessary and a default recourse is required in order to issue a judgment on a ruling that requires action. For this reason, a default is required, and while dhuhr is not always definitive, it can make significant contributions in reaching definitive qat'i knowledge, and as such is relied on. Outside of fiqh, however, this probativity is more controversial, with many scholars arguing that definitive knowledge is required. For example, when interpreting the Qur'an, this will be relevant later on when it comes to the usage of ahadith in the interpretation of the Qur'an as well. It is so controversial that the Akhbari school of thought deems the probativity, hujatiya, of the dhuhur, prima facie meaning, of the Qur'an as problematic. For these reasons, some contemporary scholars, like Shahid Mutahiri mentioned earlier, have already suggested there is room for symbolic understandings in the story of the creation of man, although he has not specifically mentioned how. This is because it would not be controversial to accept humanity's evolutionary ancestry as long as it does not contradict with the apparent nature of the Quranic text, which as explained is precisely the case. In relation to this possibility, Ayatollah Jafar Sopani, born 1929, has elaborated further, stating, quote, The divine texts remain silent on matters related to the evolution of other species. However, the apparent nature, the hir, of the Quran and the current Old Testament is that mankind was created from clay and that there were no intermediate stages in this process. And this is not in accordance with the view that humans are a product of an evolutionary ancestry. However, 
With all things considered, if the matter of human evolution in the future were to become a scientific fact such that it was empirically indisputable, i.e. that today's humans, their existence as a two-footed creature that has a soul and can communicate with a language, are the result of changes and stages, i.e. evolution. If this were to reach a stage of empirical certainty such that it would be counted as indisputable and there was no longer a possibility to deny it, then in this case, the apparent nature of the Quran is not so stringent that it could not be explained by Tawil or Tafsir. It could be argued that there is no inconsistency when God says humans were created from clay because there is nothing to negate that God has not explicitly mentioned between being clay and becoming human. Silence on a matter, i.e. intermediary stages, can never negate the existence of something. From this, one can somewhat comfortably conclude that there does not seem to be an existential crisis for Muslims if human ancestry through evolution were to be proven. The Quran seems to allow for this type of literal meaning, i.e. even an apparent literal hariri reading seems to allow for the existence of intermediate stages between being clay and becoming human. What this means is that in addition to figurative readings, there is scope within the literal reading for a gap or a silence about certain parts of the story. According to this explanation, accepting human evolutionary ancestry would not necessarily be contradictory to an apparent reading, Khilaf al-Zahir, of the Qur'an, and it would not necessitate a symbolic or figurative reading either, i.e. majaz or the secondary meaning. This seeming conundrum can be solved when dealing with the Qur'anic text alone. The heavier implications and contradiction between Islam and human evolutionary ancestry lies in the Ahadith literature, where the evolutionary ancestry of Adam has been negated quite literally and without ambiguity. If the ancestral origin of today's human beings from previous hominids were to be proven unequivocally, this would also change our relationship with the apparent literal readings of the Ahadith with regards to the creation story. For the purposes of this paper, it would be necessary to address the issues using verses of the Quran as a starting point. However, Using the Qur'an, several scholars, Sunni and Shi alike, have come to an impasse with regards to evolution. It is extremely difficult to understand the Qur'an or to come to any conclusion without referring to anything else, as can be seen by the obscurity of the verses on this topic specifically. The Qur'an itself mentions referring to those who are firmly grounded in knowledge for the tawil, inner meaning of the Qur'an. See Qur'an verse 3-7, and for the prophets to teach it, Qur'an verse 16-64. The Islamic tradition cannot be divorced from its hadith corpus, and as such, the ahadith have been an important source for the commentaries of the Qur'an, as they are possible records from individuals who knew the tawil of the Qur'an. We have used them where relevant and helpful, and where other commentators of the Qur'an have mentioned them in order to paint an appropriate picture of the issues that exist in this discussion. One of the limitations of this paper is that we have not discussed the reliability or authenticity of the ahadith that are referenced. We have only used a few of them as evidence in discussing the possible meanings of the verses. This is because we are simply entertaining the possibility they could be reliable, which is true of all narrations and historical records. D. A brief history. Most contemporary Twelver Shi'i thinkers have contended that if humanity's own evolutionary origins were to be unequivocally proven according to empirical methods, this would not contradict the Qur'an or cause a great crisis of faith for Muslims. However, most also contend that as of now, we have no reason to dismiss what seems to be the more likely apparent literal interpretation of the verses. This is that humans were created independently of an evolutionary process and that they are descendants of Adam and Eve. Other scholars, like Sayyid Musawi Ardabili, died 2016, and Ayatollah Mishkini, died 2007, have given possible explanations for various verses that could support Adam's evolutionary ancestry. 
In fact, they explain both of these possibilities as uncontradictory with the apparent nature of the Quran, and hold that a believing Muslim could believe in the evolutionary ancestry of mankind without negating the Quran. Neither scholar contends that evolutionary ancestry is definitively the case, and they give equal credence to the Quran supporting both the possibility of evolution and otherwise. Others, such as Dr. Muhammad Tawfiq Sadiqi and Abdul Karim Khatib and Dr. Yadullah Sahibi, have contended that the Quran actually accepts the theory of evolution. However, scholars like Sahibi do not take into consideration Islamic traditions or history alongside the Quran.